Fucking dude, right. you need to you need to get this straight. You I know, because you do this every time. I do this with every episode and every guest, and you know what? It's the least of my worries. If I get the number wrong, it's not gonna. F- well, he said it was two two seven. It was actually two two eight. Does anybody f- like? It has no bearing on anyone's experience of the video. If that throws you for a loop, I don't know what to tell you. The internet might not be for you. If that's the if that's your barrier to entry, you know you you, you know you might want to work on some starter steps like tying your own shoes and brushing your teeth. <laughs> on that note, Roger Williams, who I've had two people comment on the I think the first time I had you on, but it's I've had two people comment on that in the last week. Two comments. A, yeah, yeah, two comments in the last week yeah, on on, on my episodes. I screenshot it and send them to you. I'll, I'll, yes, I got them. Yeah, I'll read them right now for everyone listening. Um, yeah, it's let's see. First one was um, so someone commented on episode one six nine. Um, unknown last mate commented, please release the second book. And then yesterday, uh, Angival A N G I V E L. I love the metamorphosis of prime intellect. I've read it several times, and I'm still waiting for the transmigration of prime intellect, uh, Topi. I Google it every once in a while, hoping for an update, but alas, I haven't found anything. I tried to f- I tried to find some way to connect, contact Roger directly, but either he doesn't have any contact info publicly available, or I just fucking suck at looking for it. Side note, you just fucking suck at looking for it, because I found him in like 30 seconds. <laughs> just, just, I just, hey... I'm not, no, not, not shitting on you, Angel. Thank you for being here. Thank you for enjoying the podcast. But just, I mean, come on, Google Roger Williams, Metaphors of Prime Intellect. That being said, Roger, if you need, if you indeed see this, which he is, are you still working on transmigration of intellect, or should I cry myself to sleep and give up hope? I do that anyway, regardless of Roger's work. So that might help. Just falling asleep crying. <laughs> I heard of and intend to read the Mortal Past trilo- trilogy as soon as possible. So shout out Angival, Angival. Angival, Angival. Anyway, you've got two fans who are indeed, because you said, you messaged me, and you said that you'd sold 17 copies in one day. Oh, the, the, the thing is, that there was something else going on, because that turned into over 100 copies over the next five days. What the, that was, I mean, so I, I link your book in every the top comment of yeah. every episode you're on. I mean, no offense, but I don't think it I don't, was actually I don't think you. Was, I think I don't it think was, it was something else going on somewhere. No, if it was one or two, I would have been like, got you, yeah. Raj, but not me. But, no. but you are catching on because I've you know, got a couple of fans through you now, Woo. which took Woo. a bit. So, okay, whatever. And, and I responded to both of them in the comments myself. Okay. So, so anyway... <laughs> My plan for tonight was to do a dramatic reading of some excerpts from the curators. Fuck yeah. And it will be a very dramatic reading because as we are doing this, this very moment, Hurricane Zeta is hitting me outside of my office there. The eye of the storm will probably pass within about 20 miles, probably while we're doing our podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Is this podcast going to be on Live Leak? <laughs> uh, just as a warning, because the uh, uh, I probably am not in any real danger from this storm, because as I often tell people in southern Louisiana, we laugh at Category 2 storms. But it is very possible the power will fail. Okay. And so if I suddenly go dark, then 
I will have to contact you on the cell phone and let you know what happened, and then we might have to. I got you. Get back, you know. But I'm not really expecting that. Yeah, it's just you know, I mean, we've been in the cone, you know, like five times before this year, and didn't get hit. In fact, I've got coworkers who've been like. Yeah, we're in the cone, which means we won't be in the cone once the cone moves. <laughs> what the fuck? Because <laughs> weather forecasters don't know what the fuck they're. It's like no, it's that's not really the way it works. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, no, this time we're we're in the process of getting hit, but it's a small, compact, fast-moving storm. It's all going to all be over by midnight. So. Yeah, it's just like it really just started raining hard, hard like maybe half an hour ago. Really? So just yeah. not. All right. Well, hopefully yeah. a two by four doesn't, you know, impale if this, you. If this podcast goes the usual length that we do, the whole fucking hurricane is going to pass while we're talking to one another. <laughs> oh, yeah, hopefully, I was going to say, hopefully, yeah, a Volvo. To, you know, it's Ron White. It's you know, with a hurricane, it's not that the wind is blowing; it's what the wind is blowing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And and the thing is, you know, the, the, the real big problems that we typically have are things like floods. We're not going to have that because it's a small, compact, fast-moving storm. It's not going to pile up big storm surge. It's not going to dump a bunch of rain. The main problem is the wind, and the main problem is that we haven't had a good, strong storm to winnow the trees oh. since, since Katrina. Ugh. So there's a really good chance that a tree will fall on a power line somewhere and everything will just go black. So, yeah. But that won't mean anything's bad to happen. I'm just like, I seriously don't expect anything bad to happen to me over this. It's just, you know, my wife has been cooking shit all day so that we won't have to, you know, in case the refrigerator goes out yeah. and all that. But, eh, yeah, maybe. Uh, but, uh, uh, yes. Yeah. But it's been just like with everything else in the fucking year twenty twenty, everything is all fucked up about this year. Yeah, just so, let it, just let it ride. It's twenty twenty. Just gotta skate this bitch out. Yeah, there's no way else so, to do this one. We just gotta ride it. The fuel's out on the plane. We're coasting. Hey, we're <laughs> we're coasting. Whether or not we whether or not we survive the landing, that's out of our hands now. We're coasting. All right. So let's just <laughs> you know let's eat the let's eat the crackers. Let's drink the complimentary diet cokes and whiskey. Maybe we survive this and we walk away. Maybe we hit a granite face. That is, that's, we'll come to that bridge when it gets here. Whatever. Right now, we're coasting. <laughs> so, Annie. <laughs> On that note, let's get into a podcast. What I wanted to do was because you uh, liked the description that I did of some of the things from the curators mm-hmm. uh, about the character Andrew is I wanted to do a dramatic reading of the Andrew monologues, which are 11 very short excerpts from about halfway through the entire series. The series itself is close to 200,000 words in length. It was uh, about 120 episodes. But uh, around the middle of it, I switched narrators. In the uh, the first, you know, there are four books, and the uh, the books uh, are defined by the relationship humans have with this galactic civilization that they have found exists. And for the third book, I switch narrators from the human who started it in episode one 
to one of the curators himself, okay. a human form curator, and he will introduce himself in the first reading that I do pretty well. But I, uh, I felt that he would be a better first person viewpoint for the things that I wanted to deliver in the rest of the story. Okay. Um, and so, but to lay things out, this is a, a story where humans develop faster than light travel in the 2040s. And we find out very quickly that there is a galactic civilization because our initial experiments attract one of their fold ships to the Earth. One of their what? Mainly. Hmm? One of their what? Their fold ships. Fold? Yes, they their their ships work by folding oh, okay. space time. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. All right, yeah. Which was just an idea that uh, Heinlein and Asimov used a lot, uh, and, and this was a more popular idea of how star travel would work before Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, before Star Trek, most science fiction writers would have told you that uh, warp drive or something like that is not really believable. Yeah because there's a whole shitload of equations that describe physics that say that faster than light travel is not possible. But what is possible is what amounts to teleportation, where you cease to exist at one point in the universe and you suddenly exist at another point in the universe. None of those equations forbid that. Okay. So that is what you have. So, So... in the curators, it is the fold drive. Okay. That, you know, folds space so distant Just, parts of it are together. Yeah. And you can transition. Yeah. So the aliens detect our initial efforts and come to make sure we're not going to do something stupid because it turns out that the fold drive is incredibly dangerous if you don't understand it perfectly uh because if you don't have it calibrated correctly if you do anything wrong it can fold your planet into the middle of its sun okay okay (laughs) small print the fine print yeah yeah details Details. but it it turns out that, that we actually do have our shit together in the 2040s when we're doing this and so we sent our experimental craft to do these experiments near mars so that if we got it wrong and some planet got folded into the middle of the sun, it wouldn't be the Earth. We weren't that stupid. Okay. Many things transpire. Like I said, this is a you know this is a series. I initially thought this was a thing that I would maybe do ten episodes of, turned into like hundred and twenty episodes. Spent two years on it, and. Actually, I'm very proud of it. It's you know, considering at no point in this series I had any idea what was going to happen more than maybe 10 episodes in the future. Mm-hmm. And that was at the outside, at the beginning of book two, where I was figuring out geopolitics and how I was going to unify the governments of the earth. Most of it, two, three episodes out, I had no idea what was going to happen. I was, I was like, it was an experiment. Yeah. And it worked out so much better than I ever expected. So anyway, what I plan to do, what I am about to do, is for book three, I switch narrators. 
Books one and two were narrated from the viewpoint of a human who had an alien show up in his. He was he was a derm, uh, he was a dermatologist, and an alien showed up in his office, and that led to him being the first ambassador from Earth to the uh, stars. <laughs> but after many many interesting things, I decided well. You know, that character had kind of gotten to a point where I didn't feel he could be like the center of the action anymore. Okay. So another character was a friend who was actually one of the curators, who, who was a member of this mysterious group of beings that created all of the life in the Milky Way. They are the reason the Milky Way is, has habitable planets. Okay. And they are my answer. The whole reason I started the curator series was... I, I am very convinced by the rare earth theory that there's a lot about the earth that is very coincidental that makes it stable for the long-term uh, evolution of complex life forms like ourselves. Yeah. And if you look at this, if, if you read the book, you know, if you look at the, the rare earth theory, then it's like, yeah, there's no other habitable planets in the galaxy that was just a fucking astonishing coincidence that everything went right here but my solution to this in the curators to get a uh a star wars cantina type galaxy was it was created yeah okay so this is one of the guys who's who created it and i'm going to Look over there where I have the source code and read. There are 11 excerpts, and then there's one from the greater story that I want to read to complete it. And I will pause after each of them. I'm sure you'll have plenty of questions and interesting comments about it. Fuck yeah. So well, Yeah, I'm just so you know, I'm, I'm going to sit back and listen. And I'm, I don't want you to think that I'm just, fuck you, Roger, I'm out. This is. Oh no! I'm, this listen, is, I'm listening. I'm, is, a, I'm a guest on this podcast. Okay. Yes. Okay. So let's do it. Andrew, comment number one. Sixty thousand years ago, I was born into a tribe of nomadic hunter-gatherers. They had a rich technology, but it lay in the fashioning of stone points and spears and mastery of the atlatl. My people had not yet invented the bow as a hunting weapon, but they did use it to start fires. And they lived by numbers. They counted the days, they counted years, they counted lunar cycles, and they reckoned the passing of the seasons with a precision that would astonish a modern human. They reckoned our age in months rather than years, and I was 55 moons old when the big cat snatched me from the campfire. My tribe had well-made torches, and they fearlessly set out after me, but the cat's teeth were buried deep in my flesh. The cat did not understand the spire thing that made light in the night, and when my people caught up to it, it dropped me and ran for the darkness it had been expecting. My people brought me back to the camp, and the shaman did what he could, and my parents wailed prayers to the gods that they thought might be listening, but it was obvious they had no way to fix what the animal had done to my small body. In the middle of the night, they simply left, leaving me to the wild. It would have been more merciful had they killed me themselves rather than leaving me to die alone, but I can understand why they couldn't bear to do that. 
My panic and terror were dissipating as I lost strength, but then strangely out of nowhere, I felt new strength. When my fear reasserted itself, a powerful internal voice told me in a strange language that I strangely understood that this was not useful. There were flashes of light that seemed to be chasing away the predators that wanted to make a meal of me. And then one of the gods my parents had taught me about came to collect me. It was an animal that stood on two legs like a human, but was fully furred and had a long snout. It scooped me up in its arms, and then everything around us disappeared and changed. From that moment on, I never lacked for any necessity of life. My people had lived in constant danger and privation. My tribe had made sure I knew of the years when old people had to walk away into the winter dark to make sure the rest of us had enough to eat. But my new family had plenty of everything. They always had good food and clean water and could make light and warmth wherever and whenever they needed those things. And whenever I wondered about any of it, I found that I simply knew. I found that I knew the number 201442, which was the index of the world where I had been brought to mature in safety. And I also knew the the number 1742660, which was the index of the world where I had been born and to which I would eventually return as an agent of my saviors. I found that I knew all these worlds were arranged in the form of a spiral wheel called a galaxy, and I knew a common language which would allow me to speak to any of the residents of those worlds, who were generally not gods, but just mortal animals like myself with varying talents for technology. I was destined to be a god, though. I was being recruited to be a curator, to join those who tended the garden of the Great Wheel and guarded its equilibrium. I remembered 18 different lifetimes, lived in bodies of different form and talent. I remembered nearly a million years of experience during those lives. I remembered that emotions are dangerous and distracting, and I remembered how to suppress them when my human body insisted on distracting me. I had been given a gift my parents and my tribe could not even begin to imagine, and I was intent on using it well. It is one of those shortcuts of language that we say the curators take a new host. What actually happens is we offer that host the gift of our experience, and it even occasionally happens the gift is rejected. But not in my case. I accepted the gift of my implants' memories and the wisdom and the further wisdom and skill of the curators themselves and swore to do their bidding in a galaxy that was huge and confusing and sometimes unpredictable particularly in the matter of uncurated races such as homo sapiens. I am human. I am not an alien in a human body. I am a human with the memories of aliens to draw on for guidance. And I trusted that guidance for nearly a million years before I found that it was sometimes foul. Is that the first one? (laughs) All right. I like it. I dig it. So, all right. So, which, weirdly enough, dude, I had a dream last night, one of those, like, super realistic, photorealistic dreams. And I was outside, and I saw, like, like a weird shape in the sky, and it started materializing on, like, a crystal clear night up in the mountains. And it was it was a fucking alien craft, like, like Independence Day size. And it started. It started to like come into our dimension. And it didn't travel like faster than light. It started it, like hopped out into our. It started materializing. 
Mm-hmm. And I was terrified. It wasn't this. It wasn't what I thought it would be. Like, oh, they're here. It was like, oh my god, run! But I like that idea that it's. So it's not. It's not that this that this being realized he was. It's not that he kind of like Alan Watts. It's not that he woke up and remembered he was a god, right? He's 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 receiving this, right? It's not that he's. Mm-hmm. So he's not inherently a god. He's receiving. He's receiving this. He has an implant. Okay. And the implants are super advanced, okay. and the way that the curators work is that if you you start out, if you're going about your life as a curator, and you have an implant though that gives you certain superpowers. But also it's recording your thoughts and your uh, the state of your mind. So if your bioform gets killed, your implant goes into emulation mode. So your personality persists. And at that point, you can go looking for another host. Okay. And uh, what uh, happened to our narrator is that uh, it was suggested to him that he should find a human host. Okay. Because the curators wanted to observe our world and he accepted this assignment and uh so the uh the implant with this ongoing personality finds uh an individual who needs to be mature enough to have formed all the appropriate implants uh imprints rather to live a normal life as that a member of that species. Okay. So you know what to eat. Yeah. You, you know, you, you know what smells right and all yeah. you have, you know, some somewhat appropriate, uh, social parameters, but not old enough to have formed really higher level directives, you know, it's like long-term goals and, and imprints and all. So those come from the implant personality. And so the curators have been doing this for literally billions of years. Okay. So they have it down to a fine art. Yeah. You know, they basically designed us. They designed our world. They, they are rather, they didn't design our particular world, but they came up with a recipe for making worlds that are likely to be habitable. That have to have a moon, that have to have plate tectonics, have to be within a certain weight range that have to have a certain solar system around them. And they've been going around for billions of years making worlds. So that's why the rare earth isn't rare in the story universe. Yeah. The curators made it. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, uh, comma, the the little footnote in the the story is that for whatever reason, which is not known at first. It's not 100%. The curators didn't curate us. Okay. Normally, when a species reaches what they call the critical path, they come in and they start giving gifts. You know, they give the gift of knowledge, you know, of writing, the gift of fire, the gift of writing, the gift of, you know, nuclear energy or whatever's necessary uh, in order to give, get them to the point where they can do space travel. Okay, and they didn't. You know, they decided we were too. Apparently, they decided we were too violent, and they thought we would probably just end up killing ourselves. Or which is a thing that will come out in the monologues uh, that that I'm 
uh, about to do here. So uh, that's that's like the back the backstory. Okay. 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 So I'm buckled up. Let's go. Part two or number two. Eight thousand years ago. The curators had recruited a handful of human agents around the time they recruited me. Humans had already spread beyond Africa, throughout most of Asia, and even as far as Australia. Our mortality cure included epigenetic switches that let us modify our appearance so that we could continue to fit in as humans adapted to new environments. My beat was the part of the world known today as the Middle East, and I fit in perfectly as I watched humans develop agriculture, cities, and their first nascent empire without any help from the curators. Normally, by this point in species development, the curators would have helped them acquire a uniform language, fire, writing, arithmetic, Arabic numeric notation, agriculture, and other gifts, and our existence would be common knowledge. But the decision had been made not to curate humanity before I was recruited. And our presence was a formality to verify the decision-making process. There was some surprise that humans had attained so much on our own with no help from us. And without knowledge of our existence, humans were making up their own stories to explain where they had come from and how their world worked. In order to get as close to the forming nexus of power as possible, I posed as a scribe and allowed myself to be enslaved. This was, of course, a sham, since you can't really restrain someone who can simply fold out of your cage or restraints at will, but they didn't know I could do that. As a scribe, I was a valuable slave, and such I became both the property and trusted confidant of the young king. I was careful not to reveal any knowledge or skill that I hadn't seen some other human demonstrate, but in order to make myself valuable, I did have to pose as one of the most talented and well-trained humans to acquire their skills naturally. Learned scribe, I seek your counsel, the king said as I was at my work. I put away my materials and turned, giving him a slight bow. These new royals had not yet developed a craving for the elaborate rituals of servitude, which would become standard eventually, and it was enough for me to show simple respect and obedience. Whatever my, I may offer, my liege. Our crops are in, and they are more bountiful than ever. My soldiers are confident that they can expand my domain by conquering one of our neighbors, taking their people as slaves, and eliminating them as a threat to ourselves. You know exactly how much we have in surplus, so I seek your counsel as to the best course of action. This was one of those times when I knew something I shouldn't have known. They were not rotating their crops, and so the fertility of the soil as they were using it was a finite resource. And with their population density, which they needed to make agriculture practical, they needed those crops. Going back to hunting and gathering was not a realistic option. My liege, your vision has led us to a great place, I said. But no one has ever tested the fertility of our mother goddess as we are doing. Should her bounty fail in a year or two or three, we might need today's surplus to avoid famine. But scribe, our storage houses have already overflown. My liege, if the crop fails next year, we have only barely enough to cover that year. We would then have no surplus to expend on expanding our borders to plow new lands. And if that is if we leave this year's bounty in storage. Do you think the crop might really fail? There is so much we don't know, my liege, I lied. 
our storage overflows only because we haven't built much because we've never had such a surplus before. Perhaps before committing to expansion, it might be prudent to build more storage and improve our defenses against vermin so we can build a cushion against hardship. For how long should we take such a timid posture? Not timid, mileage, but careful. We have two years of bounty and we don't know if a storm or flood or drought will undo us. I would buy, advise giving it five. No, make that seven years. Use the time at our surplus capacity to build strong silos of brick so that vermin can't get in and fill them up so that if there are lean years coincident with your next bold move, they will not do undo all your works. I knew the soil would begin to show its burden by then. They might be able to replenish it by irrigating from the river instead of waiting for the seasonal floods, but it would take them time to learn how to do that. That is sound advice, scribe. Thank you for your counsel. And of course, four years later, the crops failed and I became such a hero that I had to disappear in order to avoid becoming more a part of the human story than the curators wanted. Even so, the story of my council was retold and attributed to other kings and wise men in turn, with much embellishment, that became my first appearance in the Christian Bible. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. It's perfect. I, I, I don't know how good of a host I'm going to be this episode, because right now I'm like, I'm like, all right, keep going. Number three. Like, okay. It's, okay. It's, okay. That's good. All right. Yeah. All right. Keep going. Number three. Go. Okay. 2,800 years ago. Oh, by the way, when I say years ago, that's from about 200 years in our future. Okay. When so 2,200. This is all set. Okay. So 2,600 years ago from our point of view. Okay. Humans still hadn't figured out that their world was a collection of finite resources, and the first empires of Macedonia crumbled as the rich forests were cut down to make fields which only remained fertile for a few years before more had to be cultivated. Agriculture remained practical along the rivers where regular flooding replenished the soil, but the population thinned as the forests were converted to deserts, and the interesting action moved to the Mediterranean basin, particularly Egypt where the Nile made long-term agriculture more practical, and India and China. Even with the ability to fold anywhere on Earth in our long lives, it was difficult for the handful of human curator agents to keep up with the ebb and flow of human conquests and collapse. I heard tales of a secretive school on a southern Italian island called Croton, where some of the ideas of which I was told seemed remarkably progressive. This turned out to be only partially true. It was a small paranoid club that taught asceticism and some odd philosophical ideas, along with the beginnings of an understanding of mathematics that was new even to me. Those teachings were heavily rooted in visualizations of shapes and an exploration of their geometric properties. I had to also swear to my colleagues that I had not somehow given them the idea that souls are immortal and return to new bodies after death, after all, in their circle, that was only true of me. Unfortunately, they completely eschewed practical applications of their philosophy and regarded some concepts, such as the existence of the dodecahedron and irrational numbers, to be too dangerous to reveal to those outside the group. So at the time, I was fairly sure nobody would remember Pythagoras or his followers. 
The graphical geometric method of approaching mathematical problems was new and seemed very clever to me. All curators of implants, which are fairly powerful supercomputers, even by modern human standards. So we tend to use numerical methods to solve problems. And we have long known the solutions to those equations we might need to use. And we tend to give those answers to our curated children as needed before they need to work them out from first principles. It has been a long time since any of us has had to work out something as basic as a trigonometric relation using only our brains and lines drawn in the sand. But even though Pythagoras, the Pythagoreans did have some ongoing influence, particularly and most importantly on Aristotle, none of the thinkers of that era could move past the idea that such lofty thoughts might somehow be soiled by their application to everyday practical matters. And so those lofty thoughts remained curiosities which had little effect on the lives of most humans. Number four, 2000 years ago. If the Greeks were hindered by an excessively philosophical approach to those ideas that might have made advanced technology possible, the Romans had the opposite problem. They were nothing if not ruthlessly practical, both in their aspirational architecture and their engines of conquest. But they considered math and geometry to be tools of the rough trade of building, whose members existed to serve the exalted whims of their masters. The arts of reading and writing were too fine to be wasted on such ordinary people, and so their arts were handed down by apprenticeship and word of mouth, and thus completely lost when the empire folded up. The Romans would eventually conquer everyone within range, except for the Egyptians, who had the resources of the Nile Valley to draw on. That range was limited primarily by the time it took their armies to reach a destination on foot, a range they extended by building the finest roads any of us, including we human curator agents, had ever seen. Of course, this also required them to practice a very casual brutality, which always came up when we pointed out what humans were doing to those of us who had sent us to watch them. Human success would always be a temporary aberration, we were assured. Such a society could never be stable. And the collapse of the Roman Empire after a succession of increasingly self-absorbed and outright insane emperors seemed to confirm this. But from the ground on Earth, we could see another facet of this that other curators refused to acknowledge. Since we had denied humans the tools that eliminated scarcity and granted power, those who wished to eliminate scarcity or acquire power had little choice but to enslave their neighbors. Their agricultural techniques were primitive and hard on the land. Their architecture and engineering were also all dependent on manually manipulating things could be found on the surface of their world. This required much backbreaking labor, which was often coerced by the threat of violence. I spent as much time with the Roman engineers who were raising aqueducts and vaulted domes as I did with their emperors. The fact that humans had managed to raise any kind of civilization at all was amazing. And the fact that that civilization was cruel should not have been surprising. I, I love that because it's the first, it's the first like slight, I don't know if rebellion is the right word, to the curators. It's like, they're starting to have their own you can see their bias like you know it's you could almost imagine like you know us a 
two white guys in 2020 America and being, you know, our long Egyptian cigarettes. Like, see, that's why these African countries are so are so dangerous. And it's like, well, dude, they don't have anything. They don't even have water. They don't have a, a toilet, you know. So you got kind of got to be cutthroat. And we're like, they're all warlords, you know. Let me tell you how it is. And it's like, it's very, you know, it's it's kind of like the upper class of the Titanic being like, ah, those peasants are so loud. And it's like, they don't have anything, man. Their life expectancy is like 30 years. Like, they're just, you know. <laughs> it's Roger, I'm going to go grab a little uh, a lamp because these overhead lights are giving me a headache. But Okay. Hey, hey, I'm, I'm not in a big hurry. Yeah, yeah, storm hasn't wiped me away yet. Storm hasn't come yet. I'm good. Yeah, I love that idea though. It's the yeah, it's the first. It's like the first time a kid starts to quest, or like a teenager starts to internally think maybe mom and dad don't know what's best, right? It's that. Yeah. That's well, as, as as hinted at the end of the first of the very of the first segment. Yeah, Andrews had a couple of come to Jesus moments yeah. at this point. <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it makes yeah, and every time they have violence, it's like, see, this is exactly what we said, and it's like, well, that's a self. Let me go get a lamp real quick. Roger, monologue, please. Hey, and we are broadcasting from the ongoing wind field of uh, Hurricane Zeta, which is probably not going to blow me away because this house survived Katrina without any problems. So my bigger worry is that the power will go out and this podcast will come to an abrupt end. Other than that, yeah, hey, okay. It's raining. Well, that was dramatic. No, sorry. It's... Dude, dude, we got that backwards. See, I'm the one having a hurricane hit. The lights are supposed to go out on this end. Oh, fuck. (laughs) No, Tower 7's supposed to collapse first. Oh, fuck. It's... No, I just the the lights overhead start to give. I did an episode earlier, and it gave me starts to give me a headache after. Uh, yeah, I understand. Yeah, that. Sure. all right. Yeah, all right. Back into it. All right. So, number five, fifteenth century CE. After the Roman Empire fell, it seemed that the human race probably was doomed. There were promising developments in China, quelled by conflict and invasion. Accountants on the Indian subcontinent finally worked out a positional number system that made advanced math possible, but then they didn't pursue the advanced math. Islam pushed an explosion of new philosophy and technology, which would eventually bring the Indian number system to Europe, but then the Ottoman Empire settled into the all-too-familiar pattern of mad leaders and corrupt bureaucrats. Then everything seemed to come together in Europe. The knowledge of the Roman engineers had been forgotten, but the older ideas of the Greek philosophers had been preserved, sometimes in only a few copies, but it was remembered because it had been written down, and now it was studied by people who were inclined to make practical applications. 
The errors of Aristotle's wisdom were gradually discovered. Gutenberg invented a way to make books mere non-royals could afford. Kepler worked out how the bodies of the solar system moved, and Newton worked out why. Other people realized that while their quasi-religious search for an elixir of immortality was probably futile, the experiments they had been conducting were revealing other more mundane ways to usefully manipulate the material world. Much of this new wisdom was spread through letters written on newly inexpensive rag paper by people who are basically hobbyists with enough wealth to have some free time. I found the role of carrying those letters useful as it gave me a chance to spy on their content as their writers progressed in their ideas. Our supervisors assured us that it would collapse again, and we human agents resigned ourselves to recording that inevitability but what then happened was both much more spectacular and much worse than anybody could have imagined. Okay. Keep going. Number six. 18th century CE. The ocean-going caravel sailing ship made it possible for the Europeans to do what the Romans had only been able to dream of, mapping and nearly conquering the entire world. Diseases and vermin made their way to every corner of the earth, and casual cruelty was the order of the day as human enterprise continued to need those inputs which are not being provided by a nanite infrastructure. The European monarchs thought they were the masters of their universe. But then the Americans asserted their independence, and in their wake, other colonies realized that they had resources which could be used against their oppressors instead of to benefit them. The dissolution of those empires took some time, but it was inevitable once it began. Then the Americans had a civil war, fundamentally based on the last gasp of slavery as a human institution. Human civilization still needed the labor, but were now favoring economic bondage rather than outright chains as being a less ugly and ultimately more practical method of controlling people. The Civil War featured an explosion of new technology developed toward the end of making more effective war, and at its end, more than half a million Americans lay dead on the killing fields. I wore both blue and gray uniforms in order to study that war, and I had to fold myself out of danger more than a dozen times. I thought that was a lot at the time. The Civil War seemed like an awful thing, and other than the act of folding a world into its star, it was objectively one of the most awful things anyone could remember happening in the entire history of the galaxy. But humans are really very good at whatever they decide to do, and they were just getting started. I'll keep going. I'm, I'm, I'm... Number seven. 20th century CE. The story of human ascendance has, unfortunately for many individual humans, been the story of human power. Not having the nanite-based economy of plenity to provide needs, when humans wanted more, they could only acquire more than they could acquire by hunting and gathering. They had to start by acquiring power over, their, over other humans in order to marshal the labor resources they needed to do what the nanites could have done. We human curator agents were directed to study human nexuses of power in order to verify the curator's prediction that humans would ultimately destroy themselves. This study took us to many places and times. We were there in China and in Mesoamerica and the Indian subcontinent and, of course, in Africa. 
But the chain of power that led to humans' explosive technological expansion began in Mesopotamia with an idea that the leaders of men somehow attained their authority from the gods that men had invented to explain how their world worked. This led through the Greeks to Rome with a side trip to Egypt and then to the creation of the Christian church in a really crass political move to undermine the pagan religious leaders of the Roman Empire. The church then survived the empire that had created it, and for a millennium it was the absolute power of Europe, more powerful than any monarch until both military advances and observations of secular reality began to chip away at its authority. At first, when the monarchs sent their soldiers and caravels to conquer the world, they took priests with them. But gradually, the empires became the real powers over most of the earth, and the Church of Rome became a venerated but mostly impotent relic. But then, even the idea of monarchy began to lose its divine luster. Finally, in an era of global trade made possible by ocean-going chips and railroads and the new factories powered by new machines, capital and those who managed to control it became more powerful than even monarchs. Just as the pagans and Christians had jostled for position before Constantine made the move that created the Catholic Church, in the 19th century it was capital and aristocracy which vied for power, and nobody realized the aristocrats were doomed. Insinuating myself into the presence of the new capitalist movers and shakers without actually helping them required some creativity. I started by associating myself with artists as a student who was never quite good enough to be remembered for my own work. My association with people like Matisse and Picasso got me invited into the presence of their patrons. I made myself into an inoffensive student who was liked because I listened well and I heard much. I was there when ground was broken on great museums and libraries and on vast industrial and civil works. But then, knowing what the situation was, I was also there within days to trace the consequences after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. All right, so it's speeding It's speeding up. It's, yeah, I like the evolution of all of a sudden the flow of capital being the the fluid in the oil tanker that sort of jostles it it's rest yeah like you said it's less about the priests and you know the divine right of the gods and it's more about you know who's got that paper mm-hmm. all right it's okay but it's it's so it's but that's what i'm getting from it primarily is that it's speeding up yeah it's starting i mean, I mean it's I, like, I, i'm thinking this is going to push all your buttons man okay it's like I'm just, I'm just saying. I, th- I thought this would push all your buttons. Okay, okay, yeah, it's okay. Keep going. You got me. Okay, number eight, early twentieth century. The oddest thing about the Great War, obviously, no one yet knew it would eventually be called World War One, was that nobody seemed to know why they were fighting. Everyone seemed to be in the conflict because someone else was, not because they wanted to be. Yet the tangle of relationships among the aristocratic class seemed to make it all necessary, even though nobody would admit to wanting it. The internal combustion engine made tanks and aircraft possible, and larger, faster firing, more precise firearms, and made the killing fields far more lethal than they had been for the Americans 60 years earlier. 
Some of our agents had to fold ourselves out of danger more times in the short course of that war than we had in 60,000 years observing the human race. I had to personally fold away from two different sinking ships. It was the most futile and violent thing anyone in the Milky Way could remember. And while those who directed us were quite smug that this signaled the impending demise of humanity, we agents on Earth noted that when it was done, the humans buried their dead, rebuilt their cities, generally resumed trade among themselves, and continued to exist rather robustly. Meanwhile, a man named Edward Barnes, taking advantage of early private access to the work of his uncle, Sigmund Freud, was inventing the human's most dangerous technology yet, the ability to influence each other en masse through the techniques of propaganda, a tendency toward rationalism, which had been gradually pushing religion aside, abruptly reversed course in many ways, and large populations were efficiently and deliberately manipulated into enthusiastic support for things that should have been very obviously against their real interests. When World War II began, nobody was in any doubt as to why it was being fought. It was spun up through fomented xenophobia and launched out of crass greed. The propagandists did their job too well and convinced themselves of their own superiority and the subhumanity of their enemies, and they acted accordingly. Their enemies saw how this was done and reacted in kind. And this time, the technology was even more dangerous. Tactics had also improved since they had the example of World War I to study which did not really help since the weapons were so much more powerful and the players so much more ruthless. Of course, we became aware of the giant project the Americans were undertaking to realize atomic energy. Nobody in the galaxy had ever bothered to try this, and we weren't convinced ourselves that it would work until the Trinity test. And at that, the six of us who had been recruited to live among the humans all those thousands of years ago decided to hold a rare personal meeting to decide what to do about it. It was now clear that our curator handlers were just as wrong about everything as the humans might well be. If we just watched while the humans did what they might be about to do, we would survive. We might go into emulation, but we would all take new hosts. And we would have to live with the memory of whatever we were about to experience on Earth for a very long time. Okay, I like that. I like that. I like that on two fronts. I like the I like the transfer to nationalism. I, I as you as you said, we're moving away from we're moving from towards the gradual march of materialism and eroding, uh, I guess, theistic structures. Yeah, I was like, it's, yeah, I like it go to nationalism spin them up and it's you're right it's like a new it's like it's almost it's like going from silicon to carbon right you hit a new paradigm you start to hit an asymptotic curve and then you kind of turn into an s curve and then you hit a new one right it's we're moving away or moving away up are they figuring it out nope propaganda the psyche you know whip them all up and then yeah i like that they start to believe it themselves it's like oh fuck is it you know is it just the japs or is it now are we starting to be like we gotta fucking kill the japs right it's whipping that up i like that that i was gonna say the a-bomb i like that i like we even we didn't think was possible but it's kind of like it's i guess this is full-on fucking ego but in a way it's kind of like 
it's kind of like this podcast. That's how I can see it. Is because if you're limited, right? Limited resources. That's the only way they they have to subjugate their uh, their fellow man. That's the only way they can um, only way they can progress without the nanite backbone. It's you know I've I've had I've had people. One guy I, I talked to a lot. He's he always says, "I got to ask you." He's like, "How how do you have your reach?" It's like, "How do you get some of the guests you get?" And I'm like, I. And now I can only write it off as like, well, I'm 30 and I live at home and I'm desperate to get this thing up and running. So it's just like, fuck it, send out a million emails. I'm going to get a man that walked on the moon. But it's kind of like that resource limitation because it's like when you're not limited, you never push it that far. So why why else would you try to build an atomic bomb? Because otherwise you don't really have a reason to. But when it comes down to World War II and the stakes are so high, it's like we didn't even think it was possible. But now these guys are fucking around and it's like, holy shit they did it right mm-hmm. and 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 tommy you are like the poster child for perseverance i mean thank you that it's like you had one of the four remaining living people who walked on the moon on your show like you know, a couple of weeks ago i mean okay yeah it's you know you, you obviously still got room to grow, but you have proven you can start from literally just like a laptop, nothing, a laptop and a, yeah. And a backdrop, a laptop and an internet connection. And the sky is the fucking limit. Fuck. Yeah. But I like I like the relation to the curators though. It's because you would think, you know, it almost be like a Rogan, right? I can imagine, a, I can imagine a Rogan is like the curator. Like I just never tried to get on one of the Apollo moonwalkers cause I never needed to. But then you look at it with the resource limitation, right? I could be the nanite backbone would be funds and a revenue, yeah. right? And I don't have that, so it's you stretch what you have to the limit. Well, think, well, well, also think about it. Suppose Rogan calls uh, Charlie Duke, and Charlie's people blow him off. Yeah, and and you're Rogan. It's like, yeah, eh, fuck that shit. But but for you, it's like. Well, hell, everybody blows you off, and let, you yeah, know it's like it. so. It's like, what the fuck? Might as well try, right? Even Charlie gave me a soft no like four times. I just, t- kept, t- kept poking him, and finally he was like, sure. He just finally he said sure, and he's a. Uh, I've reached out to him several times since then. I don't think he wants to do it again. But shout out Charlie Duke. Point being is, it's unless until you're pushed to that absolute, because you can push yourself. You can push yourself really far out of curiosity, but when it's really no longer convenient, you're not going to do it anymore, right? But when it's, you know, if you see how far you can swim as an athlete, you might be able to do 500 laps. But if you're out in the middle of the ocean and your ship sunk, you might see yourself doing the equivalent of 3,000 laps because you don't have anywhere else to go. That's where I kind of see it. No one one else tried to build an A-bomb because... Ultimately, it's not worth that much money, right? 10% of the U.S. power supply, $2 billion in 1940, all the enriched yet. You don't need it, really. But, but we also didn't know that we weren't going to be facing this, like, global coalition of everyone else in the world yeah. you, united against us after it had been unified by one of these two Axis powers. Yeah. So that was, you know, having that was... You know, it, it wasn't actually as necessary when we completed it as we thought it might be when we started it. Yes. Yes. But it was, you know, uh, it was it was one of those heroic things. Yeah. Like yeah. the Apollo program. Yeah. 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 That, yeah. That seems 
seems kind of crazy in retrospect. Exactly. But exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's like, <laughs> holy fuck, they went to the moon, and it's like they had to. It was like we got to beat the Soviets, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I don't think otherwise they're gonna have fucking radiation weapons up there or something. Yeah. You know, it's it, like who knows why. Yeah. It's kind of true. Like we needed the nuke because it was like Hitler's gonna get it, but then like Hitler was gone, and it was like. And then it just became convenient to drop it on the Japanese. Like, if we really wanted to, well, the, us and Russia would have bolted. Well, the them. problem at that point was 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 by the time we realized that uh, the, the Axis, you know, that Hitler was not going to get it, we had spent so much money yeah. that not completing it was a waste and not getting a result was not an acceptable result. Yeah. And so they literally hid the fact that we had discovered the uh, the Nazi atomic program, yeah, and we knew its extent, and we knew it was futile. That they had never sustained a chain reaction, yeah. and we had in fact confiscated all of their their uranium yeah. and brought it back to use in our shit, yeah. But they didn't tell the people at Los Alamos any of this, yeah, well, because they wanted to keep the hustle going. There, you're right. You got to get an ROI on it, right? We put yeah. so much into so, it. It's like yeah, so it's like yeah. You spend two billion dollars in 1945. Yeah, um, you got to show something for that. And you could almost and you could almost argue that like, yeah, we needed it because we thought the Germans were going to have it. And then once we found out that their shit yeah. was bunk, we knew we didn't need it for the Japanese. But I could see that the very upper echelon, like even above Los Alamos, you know, like the president's circle, I could see them saying. We do need it for the impending Cold War. Yeah. Well, one of, one of the wet blankets on the whole thing was Leo Szilard. Yeah, who yeah. Leo, was, yeah. Was the person who thought of the nuclear chain reaction in the first place. Yeah, when he was and, walking across the yeah, street. Yeah, I can tell you've read the making of Two, the four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two, sixteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and he's, he's trying to tell people to, t- to test, even to test the bomb is tantamount giving it to our enemies because once they know it is possible the true secret of the atomic bomb is that it is possible to make them at all okay okay and xylard was trying to tell them that and nobody was fucking listening because all they were hearing was we spent a billion dollars we have to finish this thing yeah we dumped the money in then uh as you read in dark sun you know Silard was right. Yeah. And what once once they knew what we could do, our enemies went and did the same thing because if you're a country, it's not really all that difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And uh so there we are and yeah. And, and okay. Yeah. And that was even before 2020. Yeah. But what's kind of crazy is like there is an argument for the power of the bomb in that in terms of gross deaths and percentage it's been steadily declining since 45 there's something to argue for that i I get the argument against using it i like i do it's not my argument but i completely understand it and i could argue it if i needed to but there's something to be said for like deaths and violence was going up for like 10 millennia and it's been dropping roughly since August 9th, 1945. Maybe maybe correlation isn't causation, but I don't know. It kind of 
it kind of does. Yeah, well, it did scare the you know, it did make everyone crap their shorts, including so us, like, yeah. including us. We were like, you know, it's like if you snap and you punch someone and like you broke their like nose. I did that. Yeah, it, yeah, it's that, yes. it's that. Oh shit! Like they're scared, but you're kind of scared. You're like, I can't. I might go to jail. I, I had a coworker twenty years ago. This young guy, Baton Rouge, and. He was literally one of these guys whose hobby was going out on Saturday night getting and getting in a, in a fight in a bar. And I remember his buddy telling me, it's like, oh, yeah, he don't do that no more because, you know, he thought he killed this guy. It was like and, and he was like, yeah, this dude's flat out. You know, it's like, and, and, and the guy that I was talking to was like, oh, yeah, I think you killed him. That's a dead guy. That's that's this dead guy. And then that's like, and 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 the fighter guy was like, what? Yeah. It's like, yeah. oh no, I think it's a dead guy. This is like, no, this turned out it wasn't a dead guy. He was. He, they managed to revive him and all, but but it was like scared the shit out of dude. That, yeah. That ended his little yeah. bar fight hobby thing. Yeah. You stopped doing that. Why do? Who thinks that's fucking entertainment? I don't know. I had friends like that. And after working in a bar in college and kind of seeing those guys, <laughs> now in hindsight at 30, now I look back at it and I'm like, in my armchair psychiatry, I'm like, that's just some dude with some pent up, uh, with some sexual suppression. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's manifesting in that way. It's, was it, what is it? Um, fuck, what was that movie? It's that movie where the guy, he like goes out at night. And he gets, uh, he like pays guys to beat him up. And he's like, I think you're gay, man. And he's like, no, I'm not gay. I just like, I like having guys beat me up. And then towards the end of the movie, the, he gets married to the guy that beats him up. It's like some little side thing in a movie. Wait, what? It, it keeps, ha- it's not like the main thing. It's not like the main plot. It keeps popping up on the side. It's like, where'd you go last night? He's like, I think I paid some guys to beat me up again. They're like, what? I think you're gay, man. And he was like, no, no, I'm not gay. And at the end of the movie, he's like, if "You think of the name of this movie? Text it to me or it's, something." It's a it's fucking. Like, Let me know because I, I need to see this. It's this. This guy's hilarious. He's, he's fuck. It's um. He's like, yeah. Oh, we just had a little rain band come through. Yeah, it, but at the end of the movie, he's like holding hands. He's like, "This is my boyfriend," and they ended up getting together. <laughs> but okay, the f- first first gap was I had to get a lamp. Now I got to pee. <laughs> Sorry, Roger. Might as well do it. Might as well do it now. <laughs> All right. Roger, monologue. Uh, Readings from Hurricane Zeta, where we just had a rain band about six inches wide come through. Other than that, not much happening. Dad, if you're watching this, I got your computer over here. See you Saturday. And we are back. What? Yeah, okay, so nuclear bomb. Even we didn't know. Okay, and they and then the six get together for the first time. Yes. Okay, all right. 
So, and uh, to set this up too, uh, in the larger story, I've had uh, several scenes set at the top of the mark in San Francisco. In uh, the top of the what? The top of the mark. The there's a, a world famous bar at the top of the Mark Hopkins Hotel in San Francisco, and uh, I've I've been there a couple of times. Okay. It's uh, they're very famous for their martinis. Okay, and uh, I decided in the curators to make sure that this place survives. Okay, for a very long time. Okay, but this actually occurs. Uh, right as the bar is being open and so okay so as you'll hear yeah okay. but anyway there's a there if, if you had been reading the series the uh the fact that this is occurring at the in the mark hopkins hotel would be significant because i keep putting shit there okay okay so 1945 what what part is this is this eight this this is number nine. Oh jesus of the it's actually book three number 11 because i skipped a few uh yeah, yeah. episodes having the the prefaces like this gotcha. uh so anyway 1945 the six of us who had been watching humanity on behalf of the curators held our summit at the mark hopkins hotel in san francisco it takes time for our epigenetic switches to change our appearance, so most of us didn't dare to be seen in the swanky new restaurant on the 19th floor. Instead, I rented us a generous suite on the 15th and arranged for room service. We didn't use names, so among ourselves, we referred to ourselves as E for Earth, 1 through 6, in the order we had been recruited. I was E4. E2 had had the Japanese beat and had managed to fold in in time to catch the after effects of the Hiroshima bomb. We poured a round of Jim Beam and he raised his glass. To the end of this war at least, he said with a bit of a sigh, and we all toasted. But we knew it wouldn't be the last war any more than the Great War had been, and the next war would be fought with weapons almost as terrifying as the detuned fold drive. More terrifying, really, since while folding a world into its star kills everything, it does so pretty much instantly, so there isn't so much protracted suffering. I have been watching these people for 55,000 years, Isik said, and every time they do something magnificent, our handlers say it's crazy, and more evidence they will destroy themselves, and they keep not destroying themselves. This may be different, E2 said. You haven't seen what these bombs do. They don't destroy the whole world. Look at how they picked up after the last war and just rebuilt everything and went on. With humans, anything is possible. Up to a point, he once said. He was in Chinese physical form. They have incredible constructive technology, but their destructive tech always seems to lead. That shouldn't be too surprising, I said. The question is, should we just stand by and watch in this volatile environment should a single individual with way too much power do something stupid? We've seen lots of stupid in the last hundred years with their genius. I want to see what they do next, E5 said. This bomb is a horrible thing, but it's a magnificent horrible thing. Nobody in the history of the galaxy has ever realized such a thing against such odds and obstacles. What could they do if they put that effort into something constructive? Like what? 
I think only the humans themselves can decide what might be important enough, I said. We talked through the night. Each of us had seen things we were pretty sure had never been seen before in the whole history of the Milky Way. We might not be able to save humans from themselves, we eventually agreed, but as they attained powers we had never seen before, with an obvious lack of the impulse control we had been taught as curators, it seemed irresponsible and even cruel to not at least try to help them. We were done being passive spectators. I like it. I like... I like the sort of... It almost seems like hands-off approach, right? It almost like... <laughs> yeah, right? It'd be like... Um, I'm trying to think of an analogy. It'd be like if the on the underdog got to the Super Bowl, right? All leading up to the whole season and the playoffs, everyone's saying, you should do this, you should do that. And now they got to the Super Bowl and all the pundits are saying, they should do this, they should do that. And one of them's going, I think we should let them figure it out because they've figured it out so far. What what, <laughs> what do we know, right? Because we keep saying they're not going to do it. Here we are. Well, that's what these six guys are basically in that position. They're, they're like, they're... Like the you know, and, and you gotta remember, they're a member of a culture that's literally billions of years old. I mean, yeah, they're gone. They are all literally millions of years old. Uh, you know, they've, they've all this. been tens of thousands of year, years in human bodies, uh, and they, you know, they all came here to watch us, you know, flame out. Yeah, yeah, and they're watching us. Okay, do some really spectacular shit, but in the end, we're not doing the flame out thing. Yeah. And they're trying to tell their handlers that uh, this is not quite what you think it is. Yeah, right. It's... And they're like, no, we've been doing this for seven billion years. Fuck off. Just just let us know when they kill themselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... And, and and they're here going, um, Houston? Yeah, no, yeah, we're, yeah, we're watching something magical, right? It'd be like if you could be a fly on the wall and watch Eminem, right? Like Marshall Mathers. He'd be like, this guy's <laughs> fucking doing drugs. He's getting in fights. His friends are getting shot. He works at a, he's manufacturing cars in Detroit, and he's throwing everything at doing rap battles. You're like, we're just going to, you keep watching, and finally you're like, they're like, has he died yet? And you're like, hold on, he just met someone named Dr. Dre. Like let's see what let's see what happens. And they're like, he's gonna die. And they're like, dude, I just saw him fucking throw down a freestyle and he burned down the house. Like let's see what happens, right? So that's what it is. The A bomb's Dr. Dre, and they're going, let's just see what happens, right? Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Well, yeah, we're at it. We're, yeah, the human race is Eminem in this yeah, story. Yeah, it's it is. It's yeah, it's Eight Mile. The, oh my god, I'm trying to think of some some of the people whose brains would melt. <laughs> that's what it is, though, right? It's that's yeah, what it, it seems like, like, right? Yeah, uh, and 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 I'm not even like one of the guy's big fans. It's like I yeah. appreciate his. his yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I'm like, not a killer. You got you got to see what he fucking did and yeah. The, yeah, and, and and the movie was fucking spectacular. I mean, there, dude, there's an interview with him. Yeah, there's an interview with him, and he's just like he's talking about like th- you know like throwing tapes out to people at the end of shows, just like, and he's like, man, 
and he's like, I was so he's like, I'd thrown out like a thousand tapes over like a year to people. Hey, Jay. And he's like, and I was so pissed off. And he was like, I just finished second place in some rap battle. And he was like, I'm so finished. And some guy came up to me and said, Hey man, do you have a tape? And he's like, and this is this is Eminem talking. And he's like, and I had given so many tapes to so many people. And he's like, and part of me just wanted to be like, fuck you. But he's like, for whatever reason, I took one of the tapes. And he and he goes, and I just said like whatever, and I kind of flicked it at him, like with an attitude. He's like, admittedly, with an attitude. Well, that guy was friends with Jimmy Ivy, who I know worked with Dr. Dre, and Jimmy Ivy played it. Producing him. Yeah, yeah. And he, yeah, he played it and played it to Dre, and then it cuts to Dr. Dre, and he's going, and I listen to this thing, and I go, hold the fuck up, play that back, and he goes, you get me with him. I will sign him. So that's what, kind of what it was. It was just like, fuck this. And yeah. And uh, yeah, it shows Eminem. He goes, Dre comes up to me and goes, I love your work. And the guy goes, what, how'd you feel? And he goes, man, I, I swear to God, I started pissing my pants right there. <laughs> he goes, he goes, he goes, I, I thought I was going to start pooping right there at Interscope Records. Just start pooping my pants. <laughs> and, but sorry, sorry. Yeah, let's go on. Number 10. Yeah. So humans are Eminem. Okay. Humans are Eminem. So next part. 1963. Our pact to help the humans of Earth ran into a snag pretty quickly. We soon realized that we knew no more about the technologies humans were developing than the humans did themselves. We were so far ahead of them that we had completely forgotten the basic techniques that were the precursors of our own vastly superior technology. So we watched with genuine interest as they developed techniques of information processing that were within their reach to implement. It turned out that we knew no more about nuclear reactions than they did. Because nuclear reactions are mostly useless once you understand how stars evolve and you have the fold. When the test bomb castle Bravo ran away and harmed many of its observers, we were as surprised by the unanticipated side reaction as its builders. It did not occur to us that chemically powered missiles could reach space or that they could be used to deliver nuclear weapons with hardly any warning until the humans demonstrated these things. As always, those who had recruited us pointed to the resulting hair trigger situation as proof the humans would destroy themselves. But the thing we observed then was the humans seemed to be aware of the problem too. When the human mathematician John Nash proved that the hair trigger could be made more stable, few off-world curators could even understand his argument. There was a period when our biggest worry was that an accidental failure might set off the hair trigger despite the stabilizing influences humans had inserted into their own control systems. We did make preparations to throw the biggest spanner we could into the gears of their nuclear command structure if we had to, but there were only six of us and it was a massive enterprise. Fortunately, we broke lucky and they began drawing down their overkill capacity before anything like that had a chance to happen. They did come close a couple of times. We were prepared to intervene in the event they came to call the Cuban Missile Crisis, since there were only a few ships and missile installations directly involved. But it turned out that the humans present managed to avert the danger on their own. We did not understand the dangers of nuclear energy because we had never had the need to make use of it. And so the contamination and reactor accidents took us by surprise too. We also took note that they were altering their world's climate. That was something we did understand, but we could think of no way to alter their behavior without effectively curating them. 
since there was a gradually evolving understanding among humans that making big war would be at best ineffective, the powers of Earth pursued other ways to gain influence and assert their geopolitical positions. The global superpowers interfered ruthlessly in the affairs of smaller nations, and as much as they dared with each other's politics through propaganda, blackmail, and other methods. And like most humans who are alive then, all six of us remember where we were on November 22, 1963, when we got the news that the popular and inspirational American president had been assassinated. Keep going. Um. Number 11, 2060. Our handlers pretty much left us alone because it was obvious they had no real idea what to do with the humans of Earth. The original plan to let them kill themselves with their precocial toys was not working out because while they did keep creating disasters, they kept recovering and not going extinct over them. The next big thing was going to be the loss of all their world's ice, which would drown many of their major cities and create a lot of dangerous new weather patterns. But none of us who had been directly observing them believed this would lead to the species going extinct. There would be much suffering and destruction, but then the survivors would rebuild better than ever. That is what they always seemed to do. But then we received word that they were planning to violate the quarantine of a new critical path world. This was an affront which could not be tolerated, and I drew the assignment of making sure they knew this was not acceptable. I watched their improbably complicated craft drop from space and alight on the soil of a world that they didn't realize was forbidden to them, and I realized that I was seeing something that had not been seen in aeons and never by any other currently living curator, a ship was landing from space without ground support. This is a thing the nanites had been cleverly crafted to prevent, and the humans had simply gone around that because they didn't even know it was supposed to be a limitation. I let them see me fold out, and it had exactly the effect I intended, only more so. I watched from a distance as the pilot raved that they had to figure out how I had done it, and her companion, the ambassador, had to remind her that they had been warned to leave by something with that very power. In that moment, I admired them both, and I did not yet know I would eventually become their friend. I love it. I love it. I love that line. They didn't even know it was a limitation. I love that. That is fucking inspirational. Is yeah. Is don't you can't do that. Oh, no one told me I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> I love I fucking love that. And so you'll probably like the final reading that I have on our agenda, which is that scene from the other point of view. Okay. From from book 1 number 6. When M and J meet the being who will eventually become Andrew, whose viewpoint we just heard. This is from the viewpoint of the character J, who starts out as a dermatologist. Okay. Ends up being the ambassador from Earth to the entire galaxy. And this is our first interstellar trip. Okay. 
in a starship that uh, humans built. Okay. We'll be on the ground in about half an hour, M said from the front seat. We won't burn up. We don't have orbital velocity. We'll fall until we can glide, and then I'll start the engines to land us. This all went well, according to plan, until we landed in a clear area and popped the cockpit bubble. Aren't we the first humans on this world, I asked as Em took off her pressure mask. Of course, the aliens don't come here, and this is the only human starship. Well, then how is it there's a human being standing at the edge of the clearing? He gave the appearance of being a well-groomed British gentleman, and he watched quietly as we stowed our gear and departed the Starcraft. Once we were on the ground, he approached and offered his hand, which we shook cordially. M deferred to me as I was supposed to be the ambassador. I thought we were the first humans here, I said with an attitude of respect and slight surprise. Oh, but you are, he said with a smile. We perfected the art of walking among our children aeons ago. If I presented at any of your most advanced hospitals, they would never suspect I am an alien, but I am, in fact, one of those you call curators. We came here to find you, I said. I know. Earth is my normal assignment, obviously, but I was tasked to come here and intercept you when we realized you were going to break quarantine. Your cosmic acquaintances are both young species, like you, barely out of quarantine themselves, and they did not understand and therefore communicate just how dangerous this is. Why? We do not care much about what happens to species that have not reached the start of the critical path. They live and die all the time, accomplishing nothing, arousing no interest, and we consider it a duty of those species that have completed the critical path and gained space travel to learn to deal with the challenges they will find in the vastness of space and myriad interactions of interstellar commerce. Should you attempt a rampage of conquest, they should be able to defend themselves. But the species on the critical path are interesting to us, but vulnerable to premature influences and not yet able to defend themselves against invaders armed with high technology. We do not want you to recruit or proselytize them or impose an order here. We want these beings to define their own order, to refine it, to reinforce it, and then to take it to the galaxy to participate in the vast garden that we have been creating for almost 8 billion of your Earth years. M spoke up. You don't seem to have cared much for us on our critical path, she said with a sharp tone of bitterness. Your belligerence worried us, the curator said, unfazed. You are far more willing to murder your brothers and sisters than is usual. We decided to develop you slowly so that you might have time to mature beyond this impulse, but it happened that every time we thought it was a suitable time for a development, you had either done it already yourselves or were about to. In the latter cases, we allowed you to advance on your own so that you could own your achievement. For all your troubles, your species has made remarkable accomplishments. Even though you made it from a murder weapon, your craft here is a wonderfully and uniquely small and maneuverable starship. It didn't occur to you to intervene to help us with our belligerence rather than leave us to our own devices? He shrugged. It was a judgment call. Your rate of advancement has been startling. 
We underestimated the effect the threat of mutual murder would have even on those of you not inclined so much to fratricide since you had to defend yourselves against the dangerous minority. Of course, your dangerous ones tend to find high office in your political systems, which is an ongoing problem. For aeons, our policy has been one of mostly non-intervention. Sometimes our children kill themselves instead of developing. It's a natural part of what we are trying to encourage. We have had other murderous children, but none so technologically successful as yourselves. And now we have the full drive. Yes. It will be interesting to see what you do with it. It is as dangerous as it is useful. Only a handful of species in all of our experience have ever gone to the trouble to build nuclear weapons. Actually, anyways, later developed, that was zero. I, you know, this was a series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I amended that one. Yeah. Nobody ever did this before. Okay. The ability to make a big, messy, poisonous explosion is rather unimpressive next to what a full drive can do. And most of our children get the full drive without ever building the massive industrial works you have made. And with nanites, any individual person who wants to can make a full drive. Exactly. So what happens next? You leave this world and don't come back to any critical path quarantine world. We mostly consider you your own and our children's problem, but we will not tolerate interference in our gardening. The civilians misled you on one point because they don't know the truth themselves. Our standards are reasonable, and none of our children have been stupid enough to fold their home world into its star by accident once we gave them the proper configuration parameters. But a few worlds have been folded into their stars. We do not seek to create an ordered formal garden. We want to be surprised by our children. Nothing would be more boring and pointless to us than a galaxy full of life that we design performing some perfect specification. But even so, once in a while, we do have to weed. Is that a threat? Am I sharply? Just a warning. Our requirements are few and reasonable. I will give you half an hour to depart. If you do not, you will never see Earth again. And he disappeared into thin air. What the hell? M rushed forward and pawed the ground where he had been standing. Tell me he didn't fold out from the surface of a planet. He folded out. He didn't take any of the vegetation or leave anything of himself. There's no air pressure prop. How the hell did he do that? Remember, at this point... The human's understanding of fold technology is the fold makes a sphere. Okay. Come on, we have to leave. We have to find out how he did that. And we never will if he folds us off to the other side of the galaxy, which I think is what he was implying if we don't leave. He just showed us something extremely valuable. And what's that? We're nowhere near being able to do anything like this. No, but now that we know it's possible, we can start trying to figure out how he did it. <laughs> Touche, Roger. I like that. I like that a fucking lot. Leo Szilard vibes. <laughs> Fuck so, yeah. That was that was my uh, 
dramatic reading for tonight. Now, I was going to ha- make a suggestion. Sure. Okay, a challenge. Okay. Because I know you have a problem with the reading thing. Not, you know, uh, oh, okay. Oh. Yeah, audiobooks. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, get the robot to read it for you because yeah. reading doesn't work and yeah. all that. Okay, so I would like to make a suggestion. Okay. A gentle challenge. Sure. I, I sent you the link for the first episode of The Curators. I would like to challenge you to read one episode a day. They're, they're short. They're all under two thousand words. Okay. Uh, for one week, which will bring you to the excerpt that I just read you. Okay. Incidentally, and that's it. You know, it, it's just uh, to, to give it a try. Okay. Because the thing about it is, is that I, uh, I I've known other people who had the reading block. You know, it's, it's like they're capable of reading, but it's a chore. It's, yeah difficult it's yeah. a pain it's like you don't look forward to it it's yeah. like oh crap i've got to read this yeah thing. yeah yeah okay so what i what i what, what i would like to, to suggest is that when i wrote this it's a serial so it's in little bitty chunks yeah each of which has a hook because it's a fucking serial. So it's got to have something to bring you in for the next part. Yeah. And so I would like to ask you to just give it a try. I'll give it a try. Okay. I'll, I'll give and, it a try. And, and, if you, and if you report to me next Wednesday that it's just not fucking working out, then okay, that's fine. All right. Whatever. You know, but, you know, the thing is, the way you improve these things, if you can... Is by doing, it. and I know how you get into this mental trap of you know when you do have to read something, you're dreading it. Yeah. So there's no positive feedback, even when you manage to do it. Yeah. So I'm thinking if 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 you like this, you know you know you get a little endorphin thing, you know you get a little positive charge out of each of these episodes, and don't push yourself. It's like I'm saying, just saying one a day. Don't. Don't push it. Don't think, oh, yeah, I was like, okay, just do one. And ask yourself if you want to do that. Yes, yeah, do, do, do the first six or whatever until we get to next Wednesday. And then just tell me how it went. I'll do that. I'm open to it. I'm open to the challenge. I'm open to growth. Yeah. You know, and, and I honestly don't know how well it will work because me neither. You know, you're, 30, you're 30 years old. And I don't know if the human brain is still plastic enough at that stage, yeah. but I think it might be. And I, I think if you enter a situation where you are reading and getting rewards, mm. and you know, instead of it being a uh, a, just this fucking nuisance that I've got to deal with, you know, uh, then then it it might help to to open it up and you know. Well, it's like whatever. It's, it's like I'm not a fucking professional or anything. So yeah. I'm, I'm I'm down to open it to open up. Yeah, maybe if maybe it's maybe dopamine is the water, and uh, the more moist you get the soil, the more the more neuroplastic the neuroplasticity of your brain increases. I I think that's a possibility. I'm open to and, it. 
And the, and the thing is, you know, when I created this thing, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. It was, you know, but it just broke all the records as far as, uh, I mean, I thought it was going to be a one-off story. And my wife was like, oh, man, you have a lot more to say about this universe. A lot more to say about it tended, you know, ended up being 120 episodes. 200,000 words. 200, you know, 200,000 words. And it's like, but it's in little teeny chunks, each of which has a hook yeah. to get you into the next one. Yeah. And there's no, there was no point in the whole creation of this thing where I was more than 10 episodes in the future knowing what the fuck I was going to do. And that in itself is like, I would say if I was talking to someone who was a writer, I would say that is one of the best exercises I have ever done in my life for myself. Really? As far as this, right. As like, there's no way I would be contemplating doing Topi if I had not done the curators yeah because it, it got me back in touch with for, you know what the, the freaks you know my muse yes yes and and uh, it, it was just you know and I'm very it's like I'm really fucking proud of it yeah it's as well as you should be and that's but that's kind of I've, i described to a friend of mine that loves this podcast it's kind of what you're saying i tell him that looking out at this thing i always visualize it as like i always visualize like a bunch of like almost like the matrix rain like i'm standing here and like when i'm vi like i'm walking on the street i visualize it as like there's like a, a river of like matrix rain and it's flowing away from me and I see it's branching off into potential guests, and each guest branches out, almost like a chain reaction, like Leo Szilard. <laughs> but I can never see farther. Whenever I visualize this, and I don't do it intentionally, I'm not like, let's think of this. I sort of just let it happen. I see it branching off. I'm going to get this guest and this guest, and maybe that breaks to here and breaks to here. But it can never go more than like 10 or 15 feet in front of me. Because what happens is, is it hits this like inverse waterfall. It just it goes straight up. And what that is to me is I've now come to see that as that is the event horizon. I don't know. It's the singularity. It's just so it's like, hey, man, where do you see this podcast in a month? I'm like, I can tell you where I see it in eight days. Upper limits. Like, but it's kind of it's kind of like what you're saying, though. I'm like, aside from that, like understood physics, like breaks down. Nothing. We don't get it. It's like light slows down. Time goes backwards. Like there's and you divide by zero. But that's. It's a it's a very good um, in a lot of ways it's kind of like the curator. You have limited resources in that you could say that time and uh, forecasting is your limited resource. So by not knowing or Eminem, you could say that like by only going in freestyle and you got to rhyme with this because I have to take a piss and tomorrow is another episode. And like I don't know though, right? Because and so I, I just break that rhyme because I don't know. But when you're always looking for the word just in front of you, yeah. God damn, man! If that doesn't make you like learn quickly, right? Sink or yeah. swim. 
Yeah, you know, we, uh, I don't know if I told you, but we had a rap battle on Corrosion back before Corrosion died. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and of course, it wasn't spoken because it was all written word, but, yeah. uh, we, uh, we, we, we had a thread that was a rap battle and, uh, I was declared the winner. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. But, uh, the, uh, the rhyme that uh, got it for me. Uh, to Asimov, I have sometimes been compared. You ought to check out a opinion he aired. The violent energy must sometimes be spent. It's still the last refuge of the incompetent. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> but it's... <laughs> Yeah, there's something about that sort of, right, that freestyle. And I was think the thing is, after that that weekend, you know, when we were doing that, because that was like the 50th post that I put, and it was like, you can't fucking stop thinking and rock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, yeah. It was like. I would imagine that. Get, getting out of that habit was like, it took me three or four days to stop fucking thinking and rock. Yeah, it's. <laughs> But if you ever watched, there's like a Mac Miller freestyle, I think, or one of the early Eminem freestyle in that same video I was telling you about. He's like, yeah, he's he's well, I can't play it because I don't want to get my channel yanked. But it's him doing a freestyle. (laughs) But it's it's fucking amazing. It's yeah. But the ending line is beat your ass like a jealous husband, like, and that's like the finishing line, and like it's it's just amazing. But yeah, he's shitting on the guy. He's like, because you wrote 90% of this. Uh, yeah. And when you go looking for your freestyle, it comes up missing like Snoop Dogg's police files. But he's just... Well, the thing is, in the in the rap battle on K5, I spent most of it doing Dr. Seuss shit. Yeah. It was like, you're doing Eminem, I'm doing Dr. Seuss. They're doing all this violent shit. It's like, I'm going to mess your shit up. I'm going to take your head off. I'm going to... Yeah, it's yeah. Like, and, and I'm just like, you know, and, and I'm doing, uh, you know... Cat in the Hat. Yeah, it's, it's like I'm mean, I'm literally doing Doctor Who's Doctor Seuss style yeah. rhymes and all, and we're and so we're bantering with this, and then it was like that last one that I just told you was like the one that sealed the deal, and it's like then then one of the side guys just said, "Okay, I declare you the winner." Winner. It was winner. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the sad thing is, it's not online anymore because Corrosion went off of the air, and I don't have a fucking copy of it. I think you know, I've I've come to start to view that stuff that's vanished from online. I start to appreciate it more for what it is. Like I go way out of my way to make sure my podcasts survive. But yeah, I know you got the nuclear bunker there, and I you're got, safe. I got a terabyte hard drive. I got NORAD, dude. I got NORAD bag and all that shit. It's got yeah. three <laughs> tier. It's got three tiers of Faraday shielding, three tiers of Faraday shielding, five tiers of waterproofing, two tiers of fireproofing. <laughs> I'll die, and they'll find this thing. <laughs> They're gonna uncover this thing and. In 600 years. Yeah. You're not even getting hit by a hurricane right now. That's no, but that's what this thing is for. This thing... Norad over in the corner. This fucker. It's... That's what this thing is meant for. It is... Right now... Right now, I could... Lit, like, no hyperbole. I could... I could go get a jerry can of gasoline. 
I could dump it over this thing, light it, and walk out of the house and wait for the fire department to come and put this whole thing out. And I, and then there could be a solar flare. <laughs> and I can, and then we can take the rubble and go dump it in the pond out for out at the end of the neighborhood. And I can go in seventy two hours and yank this bitch out, and it'll be just fine. <laughs> it's my podcast. And then the real. It's like it's kind of like Leo Szilard, right? The real secrecy is that it's possible at all. The real safety of this NORAD safe is that there's nothing worth stealing. <laughs> this is just my <laughs> podcast. It's like, what is it? Is it blackmail on politicians? Yes. Nope. It's all online. There's nothing to you take. You got all the trouble to break this safe and all this shit, and all it is is you can go to YouTube, a hard man. drive with these podcasts. You can go to YouTube, dog. You can get it all online. <laughs> That's all it is, though, but... I kind of like it. I like the challenge of can it survive? Yeah. That's what I got right now. But yeah, it's... um, I like it. I like the idea of the curators. I do like the idea of... It's something I've kind of toyed with more. I do like the idea of there being like beings on this earth who just look identical to us. And I don't mean that in some like you know, reptiles run the world. No, no, but I just like the idea of someone popping in and just going in full camouflage and just sitting in, like sitting in on a college class. But the rule is you can't fuck with it, right? You just sit in and watch. Well, I mean, well, I mean, the thing is, if there is a galactic civilization, the question is, where the fuck are they? And so making it compatible with the fact that we exist and this is our lived existence is kind of a challenge if you're a science fiction writer, I yeah. think. Yeah. So, uh, I, I mean... The the whole thing with the curators is I wanted to take their challenge to do, you know, human primacy things and, you know, human exceptionalism. Yeah. And, and I understand the reason that their group exists because, yeah, if you look at it from a certain point of view – the movie Avatar was really kind of annoying. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, yeah, we're the bad guys. We're fucking incompetent. We get our butts kicked by these primitive people yeah. that like, don't even have like radio or anything. Yeah, fuck and that. Yeah. So, Humans would have won. We would have yeah. just napalmed it from orbit. Fuck off. Yeah. Fuck out so, of here. So it's like, no, seriously, we would, we, you know, and, you know, but on the other hand, I didn't want to use, and, and the thing is, if you read, an HFY is a really friendly group, if you're a writer. That is the thing that attracted me to them, even though this wasn't like my primary attraction as a topic, but it was that they are a really friendly group to writers as far as giving you an audience, giving you positive feedback, you know, and, and, and not asshole feedback, you know, it's yeah. like, you know, they're, they're not bad about, it. you know, it's every once in a while you get a story that doesn't, you know, follow their trajectory. So, so I thought it would be fun 
to do something that explored that space of human exceptionalism yeah but in a different way and 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 in the you know so it took me two years to do all this and in that time i was reading uh hfy every day and it's like when you you read the meta post one you know there are a couple of big things that keep coming up over and over again in in the meta discussions well one of them was i got blue balls because this dude started this series did 50 episodes and disappeared and never finished it and i was intent i was not going to be that guy yeah yeah okay so yeah and and a, and a lot of people were like they were you know when i finished up the curators i was like i have to finish the thing i have to it has to have an ending yeah and oh my god you know so there are people who were like crestfallen but on the other hand it was like well you know i i can't continue doing this until the end of time yeah so it has to either end or i become one of those people you complain about with the blue balls because i had a series and i didn't end it so i'm ending the series i'm drawing it to a conclusion which i think was a satisfactory conclusion Mm -hmm. and um You know, what else can you do? Is is you know, it, it's uh... yeah. It's they're gonna complain. They're gonna complain if you pull the rug out from under them, or they're yeah. gonna complain because you should have ended it earlier. Yeah, it's right. It's gonna be like The Simpsons. They're gonna be like, you went too long, and it's like, well, fuck out of here. I can't win with you. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but but uh, I, I I have to say that the. Uh, the audience at HFY was extremely good to me. Fuck yeah. Uh, I, I had excellent feedback. Um, the criticisms that I received were always spot on. They were not bullshit. They were, uh, you can do a lot worse than to, if you're a writer, to to write something for HFY. Yeah. But, of course, they you know that is their, their shtick. It yeah. has to be about science fiction story about humans pumping ass out in the universe, and you know, and and the thing is, the uh, the regulars they actually have a list of tropes. It's like, okay, everyone does this. Humans are bigger, stronger, faster than other aliens. Yeah, we don't know why. Yeah, humans eat shit that's toxic to everything in the in the universe for fun. Yeah. We don't know why we're able to do that. Yeah, and it's like, and so, and so, there's a list of like a dozen things like that that are like the tropes of HFY. And I also, I was trying to do something a little different, mm-hmm. and I think it was appreciated. I liked it, man. I liked it thoroughly, and I'll, I'm going to take you up on your challenge. Well, um, let me give you a, a skip you a step, okay, and I'll read you. The very first episode. Let's Since I'm it. here doing dramatic readings Let's tonight. Do Let's do it. Oh. The Curators, part one. 
It had been three years since the fold ship appeared in our sky, and I was a bit amazed to find one of our alien visitors on my appointment book. The aliens could travel between the stars, but had a very limited ability to rem- to move between their orbiting ship and the Earth's surface. So we had brought them a docking ring, and with their help, affixed it to their ship so that we could do shuttle service. There were thousands of individuals of several races from different star systems on their ship, but only a handful had actually made it to the Earth's surface. And now one of them was across my desk from me, and I had no idea why. I'm honored and puzzled, I said. You are your world's foremost expert on the patterns that emerge on the dermis of your species, it said. My visitor was bipedal, but had a chitinous exoskeleton and didn't wear clothes. Its color changed according to its mood. At the moment, it was bright blue. It spoke through an electronic translator that mimicked human inflection pretty well. And I had no idea what gender it was, or even whether our idea of gender might make any sense to it. I studied diseases of the skin, I said. Birthmarks are also part of my work. I am seeking the mark of the curators. None of your people have ever said anything about this. If I may... I made my terminal available, and my visitor navigated to a diagram of two equilateral triangles arranged point to point. This diagram appears somewhere on the dermis of every multicellular species the curators have affected. He arranged a slideshow which quickly showed me the same design in colors on skin, colored or missing hair, colored or missing scales, and colored and differently textured chitin. If I may, it said. It stood and turned around, bowing slightly. There was the pattern, about six centimeters across and horizontal, at about the point a human would call the small of its back. I can't say I've ever seen that, I said. This is remarkable. I have observed the mark of the curators on thousands of individuals of hundreds of species and shared records of its occurrences on hundreds of thousands of species with my fellow researchers. What is, it, what is its incidence? For intelligent species, it is 100%. I have to ask if your species' modesty habit might be hiding it for some reason. I assure you I have no prurian interest in your reproductive apparatus. I sighed heavily. This was certainly not something I'd anticipated in medical school, but I moved to the open floor and disrobed. The alien examined my body with the attention a lover might show, but a growing agitation that was anything but amorous. Its exoskeleton slowly turned green as as its puzzlement increased. This is remarkable, it finally said, for the first time sitting down. I have studied the curators for my entire career, and to my knowledge, nobody has ever encountered a member of a species with language, much less space travel, that does not have the mark. Maybe it would help if you told me something about these curators. I have no idea what you're talking about, I said as I put my clothes back on. That is also remarkable. Every sapient species we know of has known of the curators well i can assure you that we don't i'm pretty well educated by human standards and i think i would know if i did 
the curators are vastly powerful and they love carbon-based intelligent life. They do not intervene often in the path of any particular world, but when they do, as far as we know, no, their powers have no limit. When they find a lifeless world or proto-world with promise, they intervene to improve its chances of becoming life-bearing. When they find a barren but habitable world, they introduce simple microbic life. When they find a world where microscopic life has increased in complexity and remade the environment, they make sure it becomes multicellular. When they find a world where multicellular life has become complex enough to support intelligence, they insert key genomic factors to encourage that. When they find a world with life capable of understanding, they encourage the development of technology. But they also mark what they have altered. I suppose I shall have to find a geneticist. There is also a genomic mark which is less likely to degrade via evolution. As a doctor, I have access to the human genomic library, I said. What is it you are looking for? It gave me a sequence of about 100 base pairs, and I ran the search. This doesn't occur anywhere, nor does any subpart of it more than 20 pairs long. The alien became more agitated. This is truly remarkable, it said. Its color began to turn from green to dark violet. Perhaps these curators simply never came to Earth. Oh, no, they certainly did. The formation of your moon, which helpfully stabilizes the axis of rotation, almost certainly could. The occurrence of such large satellites around planets of this type is almost 20 times what might be expected by chance. Your Cambrian explosion, also curators. Such an event has happened on every world we know of with multicellular life, and in many cases it is marked. Other possibilities are in the record, but most likely your KT impactor, which ended the era of the animals you call dinosaurs. Wait, if these curators love life so much, why would they hit our world with an asteroid and almost wipe out all life? They don't love life. They love intelligent life. Your fossil explorations draw a detailed picture. Your archaeologists are some of the best I've ever encountered. Life on Earth had stagnated in a stable pattern for tens of millions of years, with ravenous monsters dominating the most productive continents. The curators are known to intervene in, su- in this way in such cases. They left the coast clear so your ancestors could evolve into you. They love intelligent life so much and they're so powerful. Why don't they just make it from scratch? We don't know. That is a great mystery all of our races have pondered for literally millions of your years. We think they want to encourage, not create, and be surprised by what arises. So they create favorable conditions, but they do not directly create what they want. So how do they intervene to encourage technology? They leave gifts, papers, drawings, artifacts. Every species has its tales of the mysterious package that gave the idea for steam power, electric power distribution, or the fold interstellar transport. The fact, in fact, it's an interesting thing. We found your world because we detected an anomalous fold pattern, which we thought might be the signature of a fold ship in peril. But it turned out you were just commencing research and doing experiments. You hadn't had the gift to guide you. We've been helping your science finish the... Maybe we just did it ourselves without their help. 
I don't believe that has ever happened before, the alien said. Well, everything has to happen for a first time. I like it. I like it. Yeah, because eventually you'd have to question, well, where do the curators come from? Okay, but, okay, personal challenge. You have to read the next part. I'll read the next part. So I have Thursday, Friday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I can read a Wednesday morning. So I'll be on part, I'll be on part eight, right? Yes, you'll 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 pass the part that I read to you, that was uh, where J and M meet the curator. Yeah, I'll take it. I'm taking the challenge. And then, and, and, and hey, see what happens. And if it's too much of a pain in the ass, I won't take it. At least it's like serious. I'm I'm seriously curious. So am I'm, I. So am I. I. If if I really wasn't interested at all, I'd be like, "Hey, Roger, love the idea. I don't fucking care." I like. I have no qualms with saying that to people, as you can tell. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I'll try it. I'll I like it. I'll toy with it. I'll I'll play the game for a little bit. I'll you know I'll try it out. I'll go yeah. I'll go on kindergarten mode. I'll try it. You know I'll fuck around with a video. I'll fuck around with any video game for an hour, whether or not I'll keep playing. I'll fuck around with this. I'll dip my toes hey. in. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, I'll dance. Yeah. I like. Yeah. You know, hey, this 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 reading thing. It doesn't have to necessarily be like painful. You yeah. Know? It's yeah. Gonna be like. Uh... Roger, are you a mafia boss now? <laughs> this reading thing. Hey, it doesn't necessarily have to be painful, guy. Huh? <laughs> we can we can we, we can we can sweeten the pot. Yeah. We can give you a taste. You know, <laughs> we can we can work dip your beak into yeah. it. No. Hey, we can work it. <laughs> Hey man, we can work something out, man. You don't have to be so bad, huh? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. I think because a lot of my, I think I, I think I probably just scarred myself from college, getting into med school. I think I probably just burned any love of textbooks or just text in general. I think I just. And I, th- yeah. I think that's the thing is, I think, is, I, is, is I think you develop a habit. Yeah. Of of dreading it. Yeah. It's like. Oh my fucking god! I've got to read something. Yeah, and and I can understand that. Yeah. But I'm thinking that this story is like, okay, you've been introduced to it now. I got my hooks into you. Okay, <laughs> so it's like, give it a try. And and the thing is, and 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 because it was a serial, because it was structured this way, it's structured to no, be. Readable. You you can take it in teeny little bite sized pieces, sure. so it doesn't have to be painful. Sure. And then you know it's like, and it still might not work because I like I said I don't know if at the age of thirty your brain is still plastic enough yeah. to rearrange itself. But yeah. I'm thinking if it is, this is probably a pretty good potential tool. Absolutely. It absolutely so, is. Because as I to say, it, it's like, you know, knowing that you find reading painful hurts me. It, it's like, I'm, I'm, you know, it, it's because I read it like 200 words. And, you know, like, yeah. I you're, mean, you're I, a machine. to me, it's like, 
I, and I've had conversations with people who have exactly your problem before. Mm-hmm. And you know, I tell them, it's like, okay, when I look at a written page, there's no effort involved. It's almost as if there's a narrator that pops up in my head and starts reading it to me. Okay. And yeah, obviously that wasn't the case when I was what five years old or something. You yeah. know, it's like it, it, it's it's a thing that develops with practice. Yeah. But if you've developed a block, you know, it's like you're thinking of reading as being painful. Then when you do it, you're not, you know, encourage you know you're, you're you know, then, then then you're not chipping away at that problem you're just bolstering you're making it worse because you're just like you're just contributing this oh my god this is so fucking painful this is so awful this is so such a fucking pain in the ass yeah instead of you know internalizing it and 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 like greasing the wheels and making it easier for the next time so i'm thinking this uh this serial thing might be the perfect thing if you if you want to take a jab at it, I do to try and, and uh, flex those muscles without it, you know, without it hurting. Yeah. If, like, if you find the story interesting, if it, you know, if the hooks each thing grab you, instead of it being ah, fuck, I've got to read this next thing. It's like, oh man, it's like, yeah, let's see where it goes. Thing. Yeah, let's okay. Let's, yeah. Then then you get more, and you 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 do more of it, and you know, it's like if you read. 200,000 words, then you might find that you can dive back into something like the written version of Dark Sun. Yeah. And it's not such a big deal anymore. Yeah. So it's like, I think there's, I mean, no guarantees or anything. I was like thinking, might be a thing worth trying. What if. What if this somehow just unleashes a monster out of the world? <laughs> Some, this somehow leads to something. <laughs> You're just letting the monster out of the cage. It's... Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like there's like a shitty like Instagram like motivational picture I saw forever ago, but I do like it, and it's, it's working out isn't a punishment for what you ate. It's a celebration of what you can do. <laughs> and I like it. It's like, yeah, this isn't like fuck. All right, fat ass, gotta get in there and work out. It's like, no, this is like a celebration of like, you can still stand. Your muscles work. Like you're not in a wheelchair. Like, you know, it's celebrated. It's like a beautiful mini sunrise or something. Um, oh, believe me, I get that. It's, yeah. it's you know, I'm I'm constantly astonished at the shit that I can't do anymore that I could do when I was younger. It's like, yeah. Uh, not getting old <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's no turning around it's all going downhill but um Roger let's wrap, wrap this bitch up cause I got an early one tomorrow relatively early but I got an early one tomorrow Friday I'm having on Larry Holcomb author of Presidents and UFOs so getting right back into it getting right going <laughs> balls deep into the flying saucers it's that is my drug I can never get away from that that is my drug you know what actually there could be a perfect the day after roswell by colonel corso 
it's it's this Air Force colonel who dealt with like the Roswell wreckage supposedly, but he was super fucking high up in the Pentagon. And the narrator who reads it, it by some chance if this guy's listening, I apologize, is the single worst narrator I've ever heard in my 30 years of living. Dude, he sounds like a mix between Gilbert Godfrey and Elmer Fudd, who's slightly intoxicated. Oh, it's horrible. And like, I love oh. UFOs. And he's like, and then the next day, there was a problem. I said, Colonel Corso. And he looked at me and he said, dude, it is, it is obnoxious. It's not just like slightly unenjoyable. It is, it's painful. So, and, and I was going to ask you, what you think of uh, my narration? Because beautiful, uh, I'm Perfect. obviously thinking of doing audiobooks for. Of... Yeah, I think you should. I think your voice is perfect for it. Okay, and, and yeah, no, like... yeah, I'm always biased because I always want the author to read, regardless of their narrative voice. To me, there is something more. There's always something a little bit. I feel like I got cheated on when I finish a book, and it's like book by so by Bob Smith, read by. John Jones and I'm like who the fuck is John Jones I'm like get the fuck this is a personal thing between me and Bob Smith and you came in here and just fucking you came in here and came into my special place yeah so I'm biased you know, the, the, the thing is doing these uh, podcasts with you has made me aware that I have some verbal tics and uh, little habits like yeah. clicks and yeah Oh, I find it with that myself, I, yeah. That I do, and and which I. Oh, I think Roger's power just went out. Rest in peace, Roger. <laughs> I think a hurricane just took him out. Well, <laughs> we're gonna wrap this bitch up anyway. Yeah, we can see the exact freeze frame we got as his power started to go out. Well, Roger, hopefully the hurricane didn't kill you. I'll give you a call or an email. Everybody, thanks for listening. Episode 229, Roger Williams, author of my favorite book, The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, and an awesome guy. (laughs) This is so perfect. Well, hopefully the hurricane didn't fuck him up, and if he did, Roger, you've lived a great life. Yeah, it's completely gone now. Godspeed, Roger. I'll send you an email. Everybody out there, stay safe. Just because someone votes differently than you doesn't mean they're your enemy. Love, love everybody. America is the best country in the world. Let's not get at each other's throats. Six days till election. We're going to make it through this. We made it through the Cuban Missile Crisis. We're going to make it through COVID and riots. We got this big dick energy. Let's do this. Humanity. Much love, everybody. Thanks for being here. <laughs>